This morning I am continuing to go through the book of Acts, and we're going to be up to Acts chapter 9. It's been a pretty uh, exciting ride. If you've not been on this journey through Acts, Jesus, of course, was the one that these disciples were following, believing that he was the Messiah who was going to overthrow Roman oppression and, and restore Israel to its former glory. But then Jesus was crucified. He was arrested, crucified, and the disciples all fell away, uh, just devastated at what happened. But then, three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, showing that he wasn't just about overthrowing Rome, but he was about overthrowing death and sin and the devil. He had a much bigger plan than the little plan that they had for him. And so he spent some time with them over a period of 40 days, and then he ascended to heaven. But he said, before I go, I want you to remain in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. And so they stayed in Jerusalem praying after Jesus ascended, and he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of them, to be God inside of them. Okay? He promised that every believer would have the presence of God inside them by his Holy Spirit. And it transformed the disciples. They went out from there, transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection had made a way for people who are far from God to come back to a relationship with God. And thousands were added to their number. Thousands came to faith. They built this multi-ethnic community in Jerusalem. But then persecution happened and opposition happened and they were scattered outside of Jerusalem to a bunch of neighboring towns. And we looked last week at Philip as one of those who was scattered. And one of the individuals who was most responsible for the persecution was a man named Saul. Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee who believed that Jesus was a fraud, a blasphemer, and all these people who were following Jesus needed to be either put in jail or killed. Acts chapter 9 is the story of Saul's conversion. And Saul, of course, most of us know him now as Paul. Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. But Acts 9 is one of the, probably the greatest conversion story in the history of the world. So let's read Acts 9, 1 through 31 this morning. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call in your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? On this name, and hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in members living in the fear of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray before we continue. Lord, help us to understand what this means. Help us apply this to our lives. We pray, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would do in our midst, Lord, what you did for Saul so many years ago that the scales would fall from the eyes of any who do not know you, that you would bring us spiritual sight to see you and know you and believe in you and to go out fearlessly preaching the gospel, just like Saul did. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to call him Paul throughout the sermon because that's what he's usually known as, but this is certainly one of the most famous conversion stories in the history of the world, and I want to take this opportunity just to talk and share three things about conversion that I think we need to know from this passage First is this, right? Amen? Nobody is out of the reach of God's grace. Take heart. Nobody is out of the reach of the grace of God. You know, one of the great things about this conversion story is that because Paul wrote so much of the New Testament, we have his perspective over and over on his conversion. It's not just a story that we read written by Luke. But we have his own words about what happened here, what, how he understands his conversion. One place in particular where that stands out to me is uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 16. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. You see how Paul understands what happened on that road? It's complete work of the mercy and grace of God that me, 
Even though I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man acting in ignorance and unbelief, he forgave me. He showed me grace. He showed me mercy. He revealed himself to me. And now he is using me for his glory. I can imagine how overwhelming it would be for him to see that. That no one is outside of the reach of the grace of God. No one is ever too far from God. That they cannot come back. That they cannot be saved. You know, if we could on our own make ourselves right with God. If having a right relationship with God were dependent upon how good a person we are, then yeah, some people might be far from God. Some people you might look at and say, like, there's absolutely no chance with the rest of their lives that they're going to make up for what they did in the first half of their lives. Right? I mean, if it was up to us, some people would just be too far gone. If God graded, you know, and you needed a C or a B to get into heaven, some of us have already got Fs, and we're never going to pull that grade up. But salvation is by grace. It's a free gift of God. And nobody is too far because all it takes is prayer, is turning to God, bending the knee to Him. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So it is possible that someone sitting out there today or someone listening online may feel, you know, I'm just too far. I have gone too far, and there's no way I can come back, and there's no way God would take me back. And this is the good news that you have here as an example, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. Saying, even though I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, even though I was completely opposed to Jesus and everyone who followed him, trying to put them in prison and have them killed, God showed me mercy and grace. In fact, he says in Romans 10, 8 through 9, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what we're talking about here. It's not about trying to pull up a grade from an F to a C. It's about confessing that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And that's what saves you from sin, from death, from hell, from separation from God. That's the good news for anyone out here who feels like I am just too far gone and there's no way I could ever be right with God. He's a prayer away. Salvation is a prayer away. Righteousness, being right with God, is available to all who would just cry out for salvation. And think about the people in your life. Have you given up hope? Is there anyone in your life who you've given up hope on? You prayed for them and they're just not coming around. They're not believing. I want you to be encouraged today that no one is too far from God. No one is out of the reach of God's grace. Again, the life of Paul shows us that. And look around the world. What if God were to do what he did in those days? Take someone who was a violent persecutor, bent on killing people and imprisoning them, and turned their hearts to God. Think of the dictators in the world, the violent men out there. Pray that God would raise up more Pauls, bring them to their knees in repentance, 
turn violent people into these humble followers of Jesus. First thing we learn is this. Nobody is out of the reach of God's grace. You are never out of the reach of God's grace. The people in your life who you love, who do not believe, are never out of the reach of God's grace. No one in the world is out of the reach of God's grace. So let's pray boldly and fervently. I mean, do not forget that Stephen, remember that Stephen was one of the early apostles and they stoned him to death. He was the first martyr. And who was there giving approval to his death? Saul. Saul was the one who was the ringleader of that mob. And what did Stephen do as he was dying? He prayed to the father as they were stoning him and he said, do not hold this sin against them. He prayed that God would forgive his tormentors, which includes Saul. As he's dying, he's praying for Saul's conversion. He's praying for the conversion of these people who are opposed to him. And God answers that prayer and converts Saul. No one is out of the reach of God's grace. Second thing is this, that God is pursuing a relationship with everyone. You know, I shared from Psalm 23 this morning how the goodness and mercy of God, the goodness and love of God is following us. Not everyone sees God that way, you know, that that you're being pursued but you're being pursued by a God of love and mercy and grace and goodness, waiting for you to turn around, asking you to turn around and just receive his love, to stop running away from him. God is clearly the initiator of this relationship with Paul. Paul was convinced Jesus was a fraud, but Jesus is arrested by, I'm sorry, Paul is arrested by Jesus on the road to Damascus as he's going to arrest these Christians. And Paul finally responds with repentance and faith in Jesus. Luke thought this whole story of Paul's conversion meant so much that he repeats it twice in the book of Acts. He has Paul sharing his testimony with kings and with people in authority about how he came to faith in one place is Acts 26, 8 through 15. And there's important detail that I want to point out here that is not in the uh, earlier passage. Paul says this, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. So there's a line in there that Jesus said to Paul that, doesn't show up in the earlier part. He says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And many of us probably don't know what that means unless you are a farmer. I had to look it up. I had no idea. Apparently, this is a goad. It's a stick with a pointed, a sharp point on one end, and it's used to prod oxen and other farm animals along, you know? And you can imagine sometimes they're not happy about being prodded, and they kick. And what do they do when they kick? They kick a sharp spear and hurt themselves and injure themselves even more as they're trying to kick against the goads. And Jesus uses this metaphor to say, this is what you're doing, Paul. This is what you've been doing your whole life. 
I have been following you. I have been trying to get you to stop going in the direction you're going and to follow me. And you keep fighting me, resisting me, kicking against it. And you're only injuring yourself in the process. Stop kicking against the goads and just submit to me. Just give in. This imagery that he gives us of how so many of us are just going our own way, trying to resist God and do our own thing, and he's behind us saying, go this way, go this way. As we resist, we're only hurting ourselves in the process. As we kick, we're only hurting ourselves. You know, maybe we think of this as this like instantaneous conversion. But from what Jesus has said here, it seems like he's been after Saul for a while. And Saul's been resisting him. You know, as he watched Stephen give his testimony and be stoned, it's as if Jesus is saying, this is the truth, Saul. Listen to this. Come follow me. But he's resisting. Maybe as he heard Peter on Pentecost, or maybe as he heard the disciples going out and proclaiming the gospel, again, Jesus is trying to get him with his goad to follow him, but he's resisting and only hurting himself in the process. It becomes more bitter, more angry, more violent. God is pursuing a relationship with every one of you and everyone out there. And I think about that, and I think of how many people don't get that. They think God is just hidden, you know, that they can't see God. But if you stop, I'm encouraging you to stop and consider how God is pursuing you, even when you're not aware of it. And if you opened your eyes, if you stopped and thought about it and reflected, you would see how all along, Throughout your life, there have been so many times when God has been pursuing you and you've been blind to it, you've been resistant to it. But God is pursuing a relationship with you. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4, Paul says this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. All men, all women. God wants everyone to be saved. He is pursuing everyone to come into relationship with him, to be saved from sin. And we resist him to our own injury. Some of you may have heard of the 1890 poem by Francis Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. Anyone ever heard that? The author uses the metaphor of the hound of heaven that God pursues us. And we think it's this, you know, hound behind us. And so we run away, but we turn around to find, again, that it's his goodness and love that are following. It begins with this. It says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the mist of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vistas hope, vistaed hopes, I sped and shot, precipitated, adown titanic glooms of chasmid fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. God is pursuing a relationship and some of us run away because we're afraid he's trying to like trap us in something that we don't want to do and want to live our own lives. But it is goodness, it is love that is following. His desire is to know you and to have a relationship with you, to free you from the prison of sin, the prison of self, to give you eternal life, to fill you with his love and his grace. He's following you, pursuing a relationship with you. Again, the Bible contends that God is revealing himself, even though people might think, I don't see God. He's going to have to have a burning bush to make me believe. 
In Romans 1, Paul writes it this way, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul's arguing that God has been making himself known and making himself clear, and we are blind to it. We're resisting it. And so many people, he says, are still under the wrath of God because they will not stop and receive his love and forgiveness and grace. They're still running away. There are many conversion stories like that, many conversion stories like Paul, Paul's where the the, the goodness, the mercy, the love of God is following, but people are running away. One of my favorites is from a writer named Anne Lamott. She's written books over the last 10, 20 years. Uh, and her book, Traveling Mercies, is her story of her conversion. And I want to just read her conversion story. It's a very unique graphic in some parts, but a very unique story. She said this, that April of 1984, in the midst of this experience, Pammy, her friend, took a fourth urine sample to the lab, and it finally came back positive. I had published three books by then, but none of them had sold particularly well, and I did not have the money or wherewithal to have a baby. The father was someone I had just met, who was married and no one I wanted a real life or baby with. So Pammy, one evening, took me in for the abortion, and I was sadder than I had been since my father died. And when she brought me home that night, I went upstairs to my loft with a pint of Bushmills and some of the codeine a nurse had given me for the pain, and I drank until nearly dawn. And then the next night I did it again, and the next night, although by then the pills were gone. I didn't go to the flea market the week of my abortion. I stayed home and smoked dope and got drunk and tried to write a little and went for slow walks along the salt marsh with Pammy. On the seventh night, though, very drunk and just about to take a sleeping pill, I discovered that I was bleeding heavily. It did not stop over the next hour. I was going through a pad every 15 minutes, and I thought I should call a doctor or Pammy, But I was so disgusted that I had gotten so drunk one week after an abortion that I just couldn't wake someone up and ask for help. I kept on changing Kotex, and I got very sober very quickly. Several hours later, the blood stopped flowing, and I got in bed, shaky and sad and too wild to have another drink or take a sleeping pill. I had a cigarette and turned off the light. After a while, as I lay there, I became aware of someone with me hunkered down in the corner, and I just assumed it was my father whose presence I had felt over the years when I was frightened and alone. The feeling was so strong that I actually turned on the light for a moment to make sure no one was there. Of course, there wasn't. But after a while, in the dark again, I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as strongly as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this. And I was appalled. I thought about about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian And it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. I turned to the wall and I said out loud, I would rather die. I felt him just sitting there on his haunches in the corner of my sleeping loft, watching me with patience and love. And I squinched my eyes shut, but that didn't help because that's not what I was seeing him with. Finally, I fell asleep and in the morning he was gone. The experience spooked me badly, but I thought it was just an apparition born of fear and self-loathing and booze and loss of blood. But then everywhere I went, I had the feeling that a little cat was following me. 
wanting me to reach down and pick it up, wanting me to open the door and let it in. But I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, and then it stays forever. So I tried to keep one step ahead of it, slamming my houseboat door whenever I entered or left. And one week later, when I went back to church, I was so hungover that I couldn't stand up for the songs. And this time I stayed for the sermon, which I just thought was so ridiculous, like someone trying to convince me of the existence of extraterrestrials. But the last song was so deep and raw and pure that I could not escape. It was as if the people were singing in between the notes, weeping and joyful at the same time. And I felt like their voices or something was rocking me in its bosom, holding me like a scared kid. And I opened up to that feeling, and it washed over me. I began to cry and left before the benediction. And I raced home and felt a little cat running along at my heels. And I walked down the dock past dozens of potted flowers, under a sky as blue as one of God's own dreams. And I opened the door to my houseboat, and I stood there a minute, and then I hung my head, and I said, I quit. I took a long, deep breath and said out loud, all right, you can come in. So this was my beautiful moment of conversion. I love that story. Whether you call it the hound of heaven or the cat of heaven, God is pursuing you. He is after everyone in this world, he wants a relationship with every one of you. He wants a relationship with those that you love. He has made himself much more obvious and clear than people give him credit for because we're blind, we're veiled. We don't see or we resist. We don't want to know. It's hard to kick against the goads. We're only injuring ourselves as we resist the love, the grace, the goodness of God. So stop running and let him in and let his love and grace transform you. The last thing I want to say about conversion from Acts 9 is this. The call is not just to relationship but to sacrificial service. God pursues Paul, reveals himself to him, and he says to Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, those are the non-Jewish people, and their kings, and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You know, look back to Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I read earlier how it says that it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one may boast. And then he follows it up by saying, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Right? We're saved by grace for good works, not just so we can have a relationship with God and then be beamed up to heaven, but so we could stay down here and love our neighbor and be part of his rescue mission to seek and save those who are lost, to sacrificially give our lives in service to our neighbor and love those in this world who don't know him. Paul says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Again, just I love listening to these words in light of his conversion, right? It, it puts it in a new light when you read these words and Think about what he went through in his life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. He saved you not just so that you could have eternal life. He has saved you for a purpose. He has saved you to go and love and serve him and serve others sacrificially the way that he loved and served you and gave his life for you. The conversion of Paul was not just a conversion to faith in Jesus, but to mission, to purpose, to be a part of this rescue mission. And he was going to suffer greatly right away in Acts 9. He's already being persecuted, already having death threats, already having opposition. But that's the call, to go and be a part of his rescue mission, part of the ministry of reconciliation, to encourage others to come to faith in Jesus. It's an amazing story, Acts 9, this conversion of Saul of Tarsus to Paul. Nobody is out of the reach of God's grace. Please, I encourage you, if you've ever felt like you've gone too far, you have not. He's just a prayer away. And if there's anyone in your life who you feel is too far, they are not. Let's cry out to God together for their salvation. God is pursuing a relationship with every single person. The hound of heaven or the cat of heaven, whatever it is. He is pursuing a relationship with everyone. And the call is not just a relationship, but to be a part of his rescue mission. To sacrificially serve him. Let's join together in prayer. Lord, at this time, we lift up to you those who are on our hearts who are far from you. You can raise up their name out loud or in your heart, but let's just speak these names to the Lord who we want to see him save. Lord, we believe it is by grace that we are saved. And so we ask you to please save those who are on our hearts who are far from you, that you would do in their lives as you did with Saul. Reveal yourself to them. Help them to see who you truly are. Bring them to their knees in repentance and faith in you. Overwhelm them with your love, your goodness, your grace. Help them, Lord, to stop resisting you. Lift the veil that they might see you. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.